Well, welcome again to River Rock Bible Church, church in the park in the gym. Uh, This is not our normal setup, so if you're visiting with us this morning, we do hope that you'll come back and join us again next week when we have our normal service, children's ministry, and all that great stuff that goes on every single week. Um, We are excited to be here. This has been a long journey. We've been going through the book of Mark for the past 17 weeks, and this week we are coming to the final chapter in the book of Mark, and it's been an exciting journey. If you're just joining Joining us for the first time, we have some reading guides that we went through. We went through the entire book of Mark together, reading word by word, verse by verse. But on Sunday mornings as we gathered, we would just take one passage of, of each chapter and look at that passage and really dive deep to see what God's Word has to say to us. And so we're going to do that same thing again this morning. Now, if you've been keeping up with the reading guide, then you may have noticed, if you're like me, and I don't know if you are, but I'm the kind of guy that I get a book and I read the last chapter. I look at the very end to see where the book's going so I know what's going to happen. Anybody out there that's like that? Anybody else besides me? I like to know where I'm going. I like to know what's going to happen. And so if you're like me, you opened up your reading guide to chapter 16 and you saw that there's a very short reading from the book of Mark, only eight chapters. Only eight chapters, and there's a reason for that, and if you will look in your Bibles, if you have it with you, or you have it on your phone, or your iPad, whatever you want to pull it up with, if you look, you'll see that chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, are in brackets, and it usually says something in the footnote like this. It says, uh, these verses are not found in the earliest, most reliable, and most accurate manuscripts. And so, for some people, that creates a problem. They have an issue with this. It creates some concern. If these verses aren't really Scripture, then why are they here? Well, to be honest, what that means, that whole explanation means, is that as they go back in time and they find manuscripts that are older, closer to the date that Mark wrote his original gospel, and as they go closer to the area where he wrote his gospel, and those copies would have been spread throughout the land, and the scribes would have been copying it, what they find is that this section, verses 9 through 20, is not there. What most scholars believe, there's this practice called textual criticism, where they they look at what, what verbs, what words does this author use? What is their style of writing? And as they look at that, and you may have noticed this yourself, once you get to chapter uh, 16, verse 9, everything kind of changes. The syntax changes, the vocabulary changes, and it just doesn't feel the same as the rest of the book. And most scholars believe what happened was because Mark ends so abruptly with chapter 16, verse 8, it just kind of ends the gospel, that somewhere along the way a scribe came on and said, you know what, this is no way to end a book. I think I know a little bit better than Mark. He was, you know, who is Mark? He's just following Peter, a fisherman. I'm going to add a little bit more here to the end to bring this thing to a close. Like, well, I need some closure. And so they added in these extra verses. Now, here's the good thing. For some, this, this is an issue, right? Why are they adding to the text? Um, it does show up as early as the 4th and 5th century. So it's not like this was added 50 years ago. This was added uh, pretty early on in the game. But it was still, most scholars agree, that this was not part of a Mark's original gospel. And here's the good news. The good news is that everything that is contained in this section is attested to by the other Gospels and other passages of Scripture. Almost everything in here can be found other places in the Scripture, and nothing that's mentioned here changes any of the major doctrine of Christianity. It doesn't affect it one bit. Now, there is one thing that's added, and if you've read it, if you've read through it, then you may know exactly what that one thing that's added is that's kind of a little bit different than what we normally think of when we think of 
of the gospel or we think of the Great Commission. And that's found in Jesus' Great Commissions to his disciples. And it says, if you pick up snakes or drink deadly poison, that you won't die. And that's the one thing that's added that we're just, is not found anywhere else. Um, we do have the instance of Paul being bitten by a snake and it didn't affect him. Um, but because we're not sure that this section was originally in Mark's gospel, uh, and this section is specifically about picking up snakes and drinking poison and not getting sick, um, we're not so sure that that was part of Mark's original gospel. It's our official uh, position that you don't try that. Uh, it's not, not something to just go out and try, right? So uh, we just want to focus on verses 1 through 8. And I know for a lot of people, your, your mind is going a million miles per hour. Well, if these verses were added in, what else doesn't belong? What else is in here that doesn't belong? And, and you may struggle with this. You may have a real problem with this. And I've got to be honest that this doesn't worry me at all. Because I can look and I can see that, hey, you know what? Everything here... The, the other accounts of Jesus meeting with his disciples, those are in the other Gospels. Everything there is attested to. It's corroborated by the other Gospels. So that doesn't bother me. The, the passages of Scripture that tend to bother me are the ones that I do understand. Mark Twain said, It ain't the passages of Scripture I don't understand that give me trouble. It's the passages I do understand. And I think for me, this how, trying to understand why someone would add this in and why it's there or not doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me one bit. What, what does give me concern, the things that keep me awake at night, are the very clear teachings of Jesus Christ. The very clear teachings of Scripture that say, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's those passages that I find give me more trouble that cause me to lie awake at night and wonder if I'm really following Jesus well. Because I know what they say. It's very clear. There's no mincing words. There's no confusion. The difficulty comes in whether or not I'm able to live it out. Do I actually believe what I say I believe? My kids, I share this often, that um, in our house we say the Bible is God's Word and everything in it is true. This past week, with all the rains, um, we just moved into a house and they didn't exactly grade the yard correctly, so we had a little river running through our yard. And one of our sons said, hey, Daddy, we need to build an ark. And then we had one of our other sons who said, oh, Noah's not real. And so we had to have a conversation about that. It was a great teaching opportunity to say, well, where do we read about Noah? In the Bible. Yeah, and the Bible is what? The Bible is God's Word and everything in it is true. So is Noah true? Yes, Daddy, Noah's true. And we walk him through that and we know that God's Word is true, but what comes down to is, does it affect how we live? Because I can say I believe something all day long, but it's not until I put it into practice that I can say that I truly believe it. And I think as parents, most of us experience this often. We want to say that we trust God with our children. We want to say that we trust God with our finances. But when it comes down to, are you ready? Are you prepared to put that check in the offering plate? Are you prepared to make some sacrifices? Malachi 3, are, are you ready to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and trust me that I'm going to provide for you? That's the moment where our faith says, well, maybe not this time. Maybe next time, or for me as a dad, as my kids get older, I look at them and, and I trust that I have raised them up in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. But there's a part of me 
that's anxious every time that they leave my sight. As they get older and they head off to school, and I know that I'm not there to provide that instruction constantly, there's a part of me that says, did I, did I prepare them enough? God, do you have them? Do I have them? And there's a tendency as parents to, we want to we hold on tightly. And it's, it's in those moments that God says, do you trust me with your children? Do you trust that you've raised them? And are you trusting me to watch over them when they're not with you? It's in those moments that what we believe becomes evident. So this morning, I want us to look at verses 1 through 8, and we're going to see how the resurrection, how our belief about the resurrection impacts our daily lives, because it ought to, right? If we truly believe the resurrection, it ought to impact our daily lives. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will row the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? So here you have these, these three women who just in a few verses earlier, in a few uh, verses back in the previous chapter, they've been mentioned two or three times. These are very important women in Jesus' life. They were part of His group of followers. They were some of the earliest disciples that followed him, and they knew Jesus' words. They had heard him teach as he taught his disciples that, hey, we're going we're to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die on the cross, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. But do you notice something about these women? What are they going to do? Are they going to check the tomb to see if it's empty? No. They're on their way to anoint Jesus' body, to prepare His body for burial. They don't believe what Jesus said, that He was going to rise from the dead. They're struggling with their faith. Yet as they're walking, they, they remember that there's an obstacle in their way to meeting Jesus. And that obstacle is the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. Now, they may not have known about the seal that Pilate put there or the guards that were put there. All they know is that there's a very big stone that these three women are not going to be able to move. And they begin talking about it. Who's going to move that stone? How are we going to get in to do the work that we have to do? But here's what I love as we continue reading on in verse 4. It says, looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. So as they move closer to Jesus, the obstacles are removed, even when our faith is weak. Even in those moments when our faith is weak, and we don't really trust, we're not really trusting, we're struggling with believing what God's Word says is right, God removes the obstacles for us to be able to come closer, to be able to continue to move towards His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we see here with these ladies, is that as they move closer, as they continue on, even though their faith is weak, the obstacles are removed. Now, I already mentioned that these ladies are going, and they're ready to prepare Jesus' body for burial. They're not going to see if the tomb is empty. In fact, we know that the other disciples, one question for me is, where are the men? Where are the men? His 12, now 11, closest followers, 
that he was with that at least five times, as recorded by Mark, heard Jesus say, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. So prophetically speaking, even if you take out the resurrection, Jesus is batting a thousand. Right? He's batting a thousand. He's been five for five, six for six. Everything that he said was going to happen, happened. Yet when it comes down to the resurrection of the dead, the disciples are struggling to believe it. For them, it's a bit like the Sicilian and the Princess Bride. It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable that the resurrection would happen. Even though they've seen Jesus raise people from the dead, they were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. They were with the little girl. Peter, James, and John were there when Jesus said, Talitha kum, little girl, get up, and she's raised from the dead. They were there. Yet in their mind, there was something that was keeping them from believing. There was something that was keeping them from acting on what Jesus had said. Not a single one of them said, hey, let's go check the tomb. It's the third day. Let's go see. Let's just, let's just go see. I don't know for sure, but let's go see. Let's go check it out. And so the women are there. They go in, and they arrive at the tomb, and we read this going on in verse 5. It says, When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. They were amazed and alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told him. Wow, it's amazing. He knew what they were thinking. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So they went and started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. They said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. So we have here... These women come to the tomb. Mark records that there's only one angel. Matthew and John both record that there were two angels. This isn't a problem because most likely Mark's just recording the one that talked to them. But they see this angel that looks like a young man and he says, Hey, uh, don't be alarmed. We're like, how did you know we were alarmed? Well, God sent me. And I'm telling you, don't be amazed. Don't be afraid. The one you're looking for has resurrected just as he told you he would. He's been raised from the dead. I love um, the original language has this so much clearer. It comes across pretty well in some translation. It says, he has been resurrected. That is so important that we recognize that it's a passive voice. He has been resurrected. It is God the Father who has resurrected him. This is so exciting because this is the demonstration that Jesus' death has been accepted as the payment for our sins by God the Father. And there is now forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. This is God's way of saying, my son is who he said he is. He has done what he said he would do. And now you can trust in that. You can trust in that. I think it's, it's crazy to me, again, that not a single one of the disciples who were with Jesus for those three years comes to the tomb. And those who do come, his followers who do come, come because they're preparing his body for burial. And as I think about that, I wrote this down. I wrote about the difference between systematic theology and practical theology. 
That's what it reminded me of. Now, in seminary, they often call it cemetery because they say it's where your faith goes to die, right? Because you're learning so much, you're diving into the books that so often you get distracted about what's real. And you're in this little Christian bubble for so long that you forget what it's like to be in the real world and live the Christian life in front of the rest of the world. And so we've studied systematic theology. We know that there's the Trinity. We know that Jesus Christ is our only Savior. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone that we're saved. And we know all these things. And we know all these systems, all these theories of of what Scripture says. We can explain it. We can teach it. But then, there's the moment where the rubber meets the road. And we have to take our head knowledge and put it into practice. We have our systematic theology versus our practical theology. And this is something that I feel as a church, we've not done a good job. For the last 60 years as a church, we've put emphasis on if everyone just knows the Word of God, then they'll do it. If everyone just knew the Word of God, then they would go out and share the gospel. Yet that's not what we've seen. If we could just get everyone in a Sunday school class, then everything would be all right. People would go out and share the gospel. Yet there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect, and so we struggle with which one's more important, teaching of the Word or calling people to accountability to actually do the Word. Well, in my book, that's kind of like asking which wing of the airplane is more important. I want both of them, right? I want both of them. I want to teach people what the Word of God says, and I want to call them to action. I want to be challenged. I want someone to look into my life and say, hey, you, you told me that you believed the gospel. You told me that you believed that Jesus said, go make disciples, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You told me you believed that. When's the last time you acted on that? When's the last time you went to someone that you weren't sure where they were spiritually and asked to have a conversation with them about Jesus Christ? I read an interesting commentary this past week on this passage, and it was, the commentator was writing about an interaction he had with an atheist friend of his. And he asked his atheist friend, hey, how would you sum up Christianity? And his friend thought for a second, and he'd say, well, I'd say that Christianity is simply this, that there is a God, Jesus is that God, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and that faith in Him determines whether or not you go to heaven or hell. It's a pretty good summary. Yet if we truly believed that, if we truly understood the power of that, there would not be, be a day that goes by that we would hesitate to share the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ with someone else. As we think about the difference between systematic and practical theology, taking what we know, taking what Scripture says, and acting on it, I thought about this quote. I don't know who said it. I'm pretty sure it wasn't me that came up with this. But somewhere along the way, I heard this quote, and I latched onto it because I really liked it, and I wish I could tell you who said it, but I don't know who it was. And the quote says this, What I practice daily is what I believe. The rest is merely religious talk. What I practice daily is what I believe. The rest is merely religious talk. It's kind of a harsh statement. It kind of stings a little bit when you think about it. It makes you wonder, what do I actually believe? Not what do I say I believe, but what do I actually believe? What do I act on from the Word of God? Do I actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if I do, then why would I not share that with every single person that would give me 10 seconds to share that with them? Do I truly believe that God is my provider, that He is my sustainer? 
and that I can trust Him with my finances? Do I truly believe that God is the one who created marriage and that in order to have a strong marriage, I need to look into His Word and to see what it says, that I need to, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that I need to live sacrificially in the way that I love my wife? Women, do I believe what Scripture says about marriage, that I need to submit, honor, and revere my husband as the one that God has designated as the spiritual leader in our household? It's not easy to hear, but that's what Scripture calls us to. Do I truly believe that I am to submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord? Do I truly believe that or do I just say those things? Do I truly believe that God is watching over my children even when they're not in my presence and that He is in control and that He will keep them safe? Do I truly believe what God's Word says? I believe if we truly understood and believed what the resurrection says, that it's true, that it happened, that it would change our lives. It would change our lives. It would change us tremendously because here's the reality. The resurrection is not meant to just affect us someday. It's meant to affect us every day. Most of us would say, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I believe that because of my faith in Him, when I die, I will be in the presence of God, and at some point, when Jesus comes back, I will be resurrected and be with Him for all eternity. Most of us would absolutely, 100%, wholeheartedly agree with that. But the problem with that thinking is not that that's inaccurate, But the problem with that way of thinking is that it only focuses on someday. Someday when I'm resurrected, I believe Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, means for the resurrection to affect us every day. That every morning when we wake up, that we ask ourselves, what what is it, Lord, that you would have me do today? So that when the resurrection comes, when I stand before you in your presence... I've lived a life worthy of the resurrection which you've already given me through your Son, Jesus Christ. Do I truly believe what I say I believe? Lord, help me allow the resurrection to affect me every single day. That the way that I live would be in anticipation for what's coming. Not just that I would look forward and hope and say, yeah, I know this is coming, but I've got bills to pay right now. I've got kids that I've got to chauffeur to 10 different baseball practices. I'm having an argument with my husband or wife. I can't focus on that right now. I'm a little too busy. My, my neighbor wants to talk to me, and it's a little bit weird bringing up this Jesus stuff. If we truly believe the resurrection, we would allow it to impact every single day of our life, every single choice that we make. And so there's only one question that truly remains. And that is, do you believe? Do you believe? Something pretty interesting about the resurrection of Jesus, about the messianic movement of Jesus Christ, is most people aren't aware that in the decades leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ, there were a number of messianic movements. There were a number of leaders who put themselves before the people of Israel and said, follow me and we'll overthrow the Romans. Every single one of those people was killed either by the Romans or by their own followers. And guess what happened? After their death, their followers went back to their homes 
and lived out their lives. And most of these people, the only reason we know about them is because they were barely written about in history. And nobody even knows their names. Jesus Christ is the only one whose following grew after his death. And that's because he did not stay dead, but on the third day he was raised again. It changed the lives of the disciples. They gave everything they had to make sure that the world knew that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. They gave sacrificially of their time. They gave sacrificially of their money. They gave sacrificially of their very own lives. Every single one of them gave their very life that the gospel could go forward. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that is one of the most powerful statements about the reality of the resurrection that they had experienced it. And what I love is Mark writes, he names these three women. He names them. And what's amazing is that at the time Mark was writing this, these three women were probably still alive. Mark's writing this and he's saying, you don't believe me? Go ask these women. Go ask these three women. What's even more amazing is that in the patriarchal society of that day, the testimony of women wouldn't stand up in a court of law. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were making up a lie that you wanted to be believed and you knew that women weren't even allowed to testify in court, wouldn't you point them towards some men? Yet Mark points them towards the women because it's exactly as it happened. That's exactly what happened. And he doesn't want any of this other stuff to be an issue in the way. He's saying, look, this is what happened. These women saw it. This is what they experienced. Go ask them for yourself. Go ask them for yourself. And so the question remains, do you believe? Do you believe it? Not just say you believe it, but does your life demonstrate that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because if it's true, it's worth giving your entire life to. Last question I want to leave you with is this. How is your belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ impacting you daily? Maybe that's something you've never given much thought to. I would just encourage you, this week, keep this one question in your mind. First thing when you wake up this morning, Lord, how do you want your resurrection to impact me today? What is it that you would have me do today because of the resurrection? If you'll just ask that one question, I believe things will begin to change in our lives. I believe as we continue to stay engaged in the Word of God and not only know what it says, but put it into practice, one of my favorite passages is Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then he goes on and he shares the parable of the wise builder who digs down deep and builds the foundation on the solid rock. I believe that's the perfect illustration building the foundation of our lives on the solid rock of Jesus' Word, of the Word of God, and acting on it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not know what I say? No, do not do what I say. Jesus expects us to know it and to do it. If you believe it, will you live it? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to go through the book of Mark. And we thank you that the resurrection is true, that we can put our faith in the fact that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. He is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and on the third day he rose again, proving that he had overcome the power of sin and death and hell, that everyone who would simply trust in him as their Savior 
would have their sins forgiven and be able to experience eternal life with you. God, we thank you that you call us not just to eternal life, but your desire is that we would experience new life in you today and every day moving forward. Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect what we believe, that we would live in such a way that the resurrection would be evident in our lives to the people around us, that as we go into our community, that we would allow every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.